Well, this morning, uh, the title of the message is, Will the, Will the True America Please Stand Up? Will the True America Please Stand Up? Many today or yesterday would, would be saying, Happy Birthday, America. Isn't it a great country in which we live? After all, only in America do people order a double cheeseburger, large fries, and then a Diet Coke. And only in America do we leave cars worth thousands of dollars in the driveway and put our junk in the garage. How many is there, huh? Only in America do we use voicemail to, stream, to screen calls and have call waiting so we don't miss a call from someone we didn't really want to talk to in the first place. I love voicemail, don't you? It's, it can be your friend. Um, in only America do we buy hot dogs and packages of 10 and buns and packages of 8. They are in cahoots, are they not? And only in America can you have a president lead a national day of prayer and in that same year support acts of abomination towards God. We have enjoyed tremendous freedoms in this country, but if this nation is not careful, those freedoms can be destroyed very quickly. Most of you are familiar with, with me, uh, know that I am not one who speaks on politics often and, and uh, not going to be in that much today. It's more about the history of our nation and where we're at now. Did you know in 19, I'm sorry, in 1776, in 1776, 11 of the 13 colonies required that one had to be a Christian to be eligible to run for political office. From Facebook posts and news media, they're saying the opposite, yet this is fact. 54 of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence were Christians. 27 held theology degrees, were very studied in the Word of God. In 1777, the Continental Congress voted to spend $300,000. In 1777, $300,000 to purchase Bibles for the distribution across the nation. That's a chunk of change at that time for Bibles. 94% of the writings of the founding fathers of the U.S. contain quotations from the Holy Scriptures. The highest glory, this is what John Quincy Adams, our sixth president, this is what he said, a quote from him. The highest glory of the American Revolution was this, that in connected in one indissoluble bond, the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. That connected is... It's you can't separate the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity, in paraphrasing what he said. In the early 1800s, an unknown sage from Europe visited the young, our young country to learn the secret of our greatness. Our nation had been spoken of as a great nation. And so this young sage from Europe visited. And later he wrote this. This is what he said. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her. And I sought it in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. I saw it in her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. In her democratic congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. That's what he says. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. And he goes on to say, America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. 
Now, nearly 200 years later, one wonders, has America ceased to be good? Now, I didn't say this in the first uh, service, but I will tell you, as I prepare and as I speak these things, you know, it is easy to look at your pastor or, or someone who you've met and say, that's great, you've always held those views. No, I've been very much on the other side of the fence when it comes to some of these issues of Scripture, and I have run from the Lord. But I'm telling you that from Scripture, we are seeing time and time again that His Word is true. And it is not being spoken of widely. You won't see uh, talks on pro- what's happened in prophecies on CNN and the prophecy being fulfilled. But we are in a time when our nation has to turn back to God or we are going to see great destruction come. January 23rd, 1996. Let's jump into at least some of our lifetimes here. Joe Wright, pastor of the Central Christian Church in Wichita, Kansas, was asked to pray before the Kansas State House in Topeka, and this is what he prayed. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that's exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We have killed our unborn and called it a choice. We have shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We have abused power and called it political savvy. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We have polluted the airways with profanity and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Try us and see if there is some wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless these men and women who have been sent here by the people of Kansas and who have been ordained by you to govern this great state. Grant them your wisdom to rule and may their decisions direct us to the center of your will. Amen. I was in the Navy at the time and I remember this stirred a tremendous amount of controversy. It it got headlines and One member of the Kansas State House actually walked out in the middle of the prayer. Later, Paul Harvey, if you're familiar with Paul Harvey, got a hold of Joe Wright's prayer and read it on the radio. As a result, he got more requests for copies of it than any other thing he had ever done. Evidently, there's a lot of people in this country who agree with the sentiment of that prayer. Many people feel that America has ceased to be good, let alone great. Does that mean that America has no chance to be great in the near future? If you've heard my recent messages, I don't want to give you the wrong idea when I say that I don't believe we're going to get a better leader next. I don't believe that we're in a progression to to have that. I don't believe it can be expected. I don't believe we can expect that to happen. But I will tell you there is hope because it doesn't have to be expected if the great people of God will stand And we pray, God's word is also true, it says, if my people will humble themselves and pray, their nation will come back, they will win their nation back. God has told 
you know, we, we also look at another nation that was a young nation just getting its start nearly 1,500 years before Christ, and that was the nation of Israel. And God told the nation of Israel, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. You may say to yourself, my power and my strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. If you ever forget the Lord your God, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. That's Deuteronomy 8, 12 through 19. We as a nation have forgotten God. So our destruction cannot be that far behind, but there is hope. The nation of Israel, as predicted, did forget just one generation after she conquered the promised land. Can you imagine that? We all know, if you, if you have read the Old Testament, you know about 40 years in the wilderness and that wandering, trying to find, get to the promised land. It was only supposed to take three years. But because of disobedience after disobedience, Moses trying to guide the people, 40 years, they get there, and one generation later, they forgot who got them there. One generation. America's not that old, and we have done the same thing. God had told them, God had warned them in Scripture to remember, to teach their children about that deliverance from, from, Israel, uh, from Egypt, and to write it, to teach it, to make sure that they taught their children that, and they didn't do that. And what happened? They continued to, to have destruction and turmoil. The nation of Israel, as predicted, did forget God just one generation after she conquered the promised land. And as a result, the surrounding nations constantly attacked and ravaged her land over a period of about 400 years. Then God rose up a leader and his mighty men to restore Israel to a great nation, to its greatness once again. I will tell you that I, I believe in us standing with Israel. But I will also tell you that we also know that when they are still seeking for the Messiah to show up for the first time, then they have not... They have not listened to God. And because of that, we see them continually attacked on every side. And it may be fulfilling Scripture. And so we say, well, God has already said this happened, but God truly desires for Israel to completely turn to him and, and to be his people and not to ignore his, the new covenant of Jesus Christ and the blood he shed. Will God, will God do this for us is the question. Will he do for us what he did for Israel when they turned and they, they went to him and, and he'd rescue them? And if he will, what kind of people will he use? Who will it be? What kind of people will God use to restore his great land? What kind of people will God use to bring us back to himself? That is a question always asked. I, I, I mentioned the first service that, you know, back when the movie Braveheart was, was the movie. I mean, that was, you know, you had this great warrior that, that got the people going. He was just a common guy and went out there and got stirred up and was just kick and tail, right? And, and we live vicariously through those movies, and we want to see that happen, and we're always looking. Who is that? Um, the, the Israelites, they're doing the same thing. They're waiting for the Messiah to come set up an earthly kingdom for them, to, to rebuild the temple, and for them to finally have their Messiah living here in their natural kingdom. But that's not what, what it was all about. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel 23 where we see the kind of men God used in David's day to make Israel great again. 
2 Samuel chapter 23. It's right after 1 Samuel and there's not a third, so there, there's your hint. 2 Samuel 23, 8-12. These are the names of David's mighty men. Joseph, Bathshebeth, a Tekamite, was the chief of three. He raised his spear against 800 men. He raised his spear against 800 men. He, not they. He. That's, that's a man there. Come and get it. I see about 800 of them. Come on, bring it on. You know, sometimes we read God's word. I was saying in the first service that, you know, a new believer, I'll tell them, start in the New Testament so you, you understand the new covenant, the decision you made to follow Christ. You really get to know Jesus. And then you can go back and look at the history and see how it tied in and what, what the old covenant was. And you learn. And, and sometimes I hear them say, hey, man, this Old Testament is kind of hard to relate. I mean, this is a lot of old culture and stuff. It's just hard. Uh, I'm like, yeah, but if you put yourself in the guy's shoes, in the people's shoes, and think about you being there, it, it changes perspective. I mean, the only problem is that sometimes we do that, we, we don't think about the fact of God's part in that. So we look at this man, raising a spirit against 800 people, and like, that kind of person doesn't exist anymore. Well, they don't without God. We'll see that here more through the scripture. Okay, so he raised a spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, uh, the hard word, um, as one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pasdamin for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. It's like had to pry his fingers off of it. He had been working them over so hard with the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the troops returned to Eleazar and but only to strip the dead. So they just came back to get the plunder after the job was done by the man. Next to him was Shammai, son of uh, Agi, the Heretite. He was the Philistines. When the Philistines banded together uh, at one place where there was a field of, full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammai took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about great victory. The Lord brought about great victory. These men did great things, but the Lord brought about the victory. So what kind of people will God use to restore our nation? What kind of people is it going to take? Surely by now, with, with even recent events, but before that, surely your heart has been get, growing weary of where the nation's headed. Surely if you are a, a follower of Christ, your heart has been burdened and heavy for what's going on. And it's easy for us to slip into living vicariously like we do in a nation that's all about entertainment and, and Hollywood to be hoping that some hero comes up on scene and kicks all the evil people out for us. But what does God's word show us about who will God use to restore a nation? He will first, God will use those who stand strong in him. In many movies about military battles or you even see in historical events, there is times when the army is trembling and, and the leader senses without even hearing from his men that they want to run and retreat for fear of, for, of death. And you hear him say, stand strong, men. Stand. 
Hold your ground. And then you see in those moments where the men, because of that encouragement, because of the leader, they realize they, they're reminded about their purpose of being there, what they're fighting for, and they stand and fight. Stand strong in him. God will use those who stand firm in his strength. If there's anything true about these men, it's the fact that they were strong men. If they could single-handedly wipe out the enemy, they have to have had some strength and ability. But it was not of their own, it was of the Lord's. Where does that strength come from? How were these men able to prevail? Well, the answer is found twice in the text in verse 10 and 12, where it says, the Lord brought about a great victory. You see, God gave them their strength, God gave them the victory, and they were able to stand strong only by depending on Him. And so it is with us today. So it's not some other person that God plans to bring on scene. It's each and every one of us when we stand strong in Him. We must stand strong in Him if we're going to see our nation restored. We must depend on the Lord and wholly rely on Christ. That's what made America strong to begin with. That's debated much today. But I'm going to give you some examples here in a minute. The signers of our own Declaration of Independence declared firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. These are historical um, things that are not something that someone dreamed up and just put on Facebook. Patrick Henry said, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, not by religionists, but by Christians. Not by religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it's not about religiosity. It's not about these things that are being debated. And people, I see it all over Facebook, they're like, well, Christians are this or Christians are that. Hey, so what if someone is broken like you are and they aren't representing Christ like they should be? It doesn't take away the truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only power great enough to fix this nation. Just if they could use their own ideology in other circumstances and see how that fails to say that when I see something broken, that means that anything it is related to does not exist and is not truthful and is powerless. And some do. When they have a marriage that fails, marriage is bad. Marriage will not work. Marriage is no good. In small, trivial ways, you go to a restaurant of, we went to a Thai restaurant, my wife likes Thai. I had a bad experience. I'm never going to a Thai restaurant ever. They're horrible. <laughs> but that is what America, that is our, the mindset that is being carefully infiltrated into our, our, our children and our teens and our college students, especially our targeting college students, is that, that, that you use that principle on anything and, and that's good wisdom, that that's progressive. And it's causing failed relationships. It's causing them to fail in life. It's causing them to, to lay their head down at night with turmoil in their heart, not knowing what it is that is just breaking their heart apart and feeling lonely and distressed. It's because they are surrounded and being led astray by the world's thinking that, that because they have seen something broken in a church or in a nation, that, that God cannot heal those things, that God is powerless, and that is far from the truth. Went off. My notes, but George Washington, one of my favorite, in his farewell address to the nation proclaimed, do not let anyone claim tribute of America patriotism if they even attempt to remove religion from politics. George Washington said, if they even attempt to remove religion from politics, don't let them 
claim tribute of American patriotism. They're no patriot. John Adams declared, We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made for moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to govern of any, uh, govern of any other. The morals of the, of the Word of God. He's saying you can't govern a nation without that. And even Thomas Jefferson in his address to Danbury Baptist said, the First Amendment has created a wall of separation between church and state. Here's a very popular thing thrown around. But here's what he actually said about it. Here's where the separation of church and state got started. Thomas Jefferson, the First Amendment has created a wall of separation between church and state. But what that wall is, that wall is a one-directional wall. It keeps government from running the church, but it makes sure that Christian principles will always stay in government. John Jay, the first chief justice of our Supreme Court, wrote that divine providence has given to our people the choice, choice of their rulers. And it is the duty of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for the rulers. Indeed, carved above the entrance of the Supreme Court uh, and on currency and are the words in God we trust. We know that. Uh, they're even trying to remove that. And one day, when they finally take those historical mon monumental buildings and take that stone that was laid at the very beginning of our nation and take the chisel and begin to scrape off the words and chisel off the words in God we trust, we know at that point they have set in their hearts that God will no longer be a part of our nation. They think it's progressive, but how does anybody think that the nation got to where it was at? The things we enjoyed and the things when we saw our successes, everyone, even people who oppose Christianity right now, would say that our nation is in trouble and things are a mess and they're looking for an answer and they can't see it. It's right before their eyes. The slow but yet very intentional progression of removing God from schools and from any part of our government. Our nation's founders stood strong in the Lord. They trusted God and relied wholly upon Him for everything, but you would never know it today. Up until 1962, many school children across the United States prayed a prayer to start their day. And a lot of us know that, but do you know what the prayer was that was most common that was led in schools? Have you heard it before? Listen to this. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon Thee and we beg thy blessings upon us, our teachers, and our country. Then the United States Supreme Court decided that this violated the establishment clause of the First Amendment and they removed prayer from the public schools of our great land, ignoring what our forefathers had stated very clearly. Later they took out the Ten Commandments and even the right of a teacher to put a Bible on his or her desk. And today a public school teacher is afraid to recite the Lord's Prayer or read Psalms 23 in her classroom for fear of legal repercussions. But that same teacher can tell the child where to get um, uh, condoms or an abortion or encourage homosexuality without your consent or knowledge or fear of legal repercussions. They know that they would be supported more greatly if they do any of those than if they were to pray or recite the Bible. In our politically correct culture, even the students are afraid to mention the name of God. It reminds me of something I read, a fourth grader who gave a report on the origins of Thanksgiving holiday. And this is what that fourth grader wrote in his report. He said, the pilgrims came here seeking freedom of, you know what, 
Then they landed, they gave thanks to you-know-who. Because of them, we can worship each Sunday you-know-where. That fourth grade understood that it was far too dangerous than what would happen if he mentioned church or God or prayer or gave thanks to who thanks should have been given, what Thanksgiving was all about. God has been completely removed from our schools, and we wonder why there is so much violence there and all across our land. We as a nation have moved away from that firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. We have forgotten God, and so we invite our own destruction. It's clearly right there in the scripture. We see the examples from Israel, and we, we can see that. And we can parallel our nation to it and watch it go down the same road. And yet everybody's scratching their head and saying, well, it's religion. That's what brought this all on. This has been the problem. It's time to repent. It's time to turn back to God. It's time to stand strong in him if we want to see this nation restored. For these are the kind of people God uses to bring a nation back to himself. God uses those who stand strong in him. But also, those same people who stand strong may have to stand alone at times. That's a sad truth, but just as those examples we read, I imagine those men who were set, the one who raised his spear against 800, he might have glanced for just a second to see who was near him, but not because he was fearful of pushing forward. I'm sure it didn't take but a millisecond for him to decide, it don't matter who's with me or who's against me. A man that would take on 800 with a spear. When we choose to stand strong in the Lord, we often have to stand by ourselves. We often have to stand apart from everybody else. That's what David's mighty men had to do. Right here in the comfort of our church, being able to speak freely, we can amen this and all, but you know as well as I do that when you step out those doors, and especially you get on social media, or you get out in the highways and byways, and through Centerton and others, and you get in any mixed crowd of people, that you don't have the same kind of support and amen going on when you bring up about God's principles. So sometimes we may have to stand alone. In verses 9 through 10, 9 and 10 of 2 Samuel 23, all of Israel withdraws, but David's man stands his ground. In verses 11 12, it's the same story. Israel's troops fled, but Shammah took his stand. Standing out often means standing alone. And that was certainly true for David's mighty men, and that was true of our founding forefathers as well. You see, I've said it jokingly, and I don't mean to be flippant about where we're at as a nation, but I've even had dreams. I truly believe that one day I could face going to prison just for being a pastor, for just for what I believe. I don't believe it would be stated that way. I don't believe it would be that easy to just say, you're a pastor, it's illegal to jail. I believe they'll be just, just like as recently. Already, it didn't take but a week that they already started attacking the, the benefits of what, uh, the tax benefits of churches. Um, it would be that. It would be forcing us to change uh, what we believe and eventually come down to Financial penalties, and then when you don't pay that, it'll be jailed. Just like anything with IRS, it won't be a matter, of, and people will gradually be okay with it because all they'll see is a pastor didn't pay a fine ordered by the court, therefore you must do the sentence. They may debate a little bit about how it got there, but it won't have the gravity. Be, you broke the law. I've already seen. I've seen people who call me a friend. I'm about to be off Facebook a little bit because it gets disheartening, but I, I've seen someone who calls me a friend who in response to the ones who are being penalized for not baking a cake for a same-sex couple, they've now been given a gag order that they can't even, because people were supporting them, giving them money to help pay the $135,000 uh, 
penalty of the court and to keep him out of jail. And the court went back and issued gag order so they can't even talk about it. And I've seen someone who calls me a friend who would say, great job with the church or doing anything, to say, well, they, break the law, they broke the law, they deserve it. So if we are willing to do that, while we still over here and say, this is my friend, the Christian, or the pastor, if our hearts have gone to that point where we will not take a stand when we see something wrong because of fear of retribution, then we know, church, the time is coming. And I've jokingly said, and I'll get back to what I joke about, is as long as my family's okay, then all I worry about is give me enough food and a place to work out so I don't get uh, out of shape, and then uh, I have lots of time to catch up on books I don't get to read. And then I'll annoy every jailer and everybody in the prison by, with my horrible singing voice singing every worship song that we sung at New Song. But, you know, you have to look at it that way. Is I'm going to pray for this nation. I want to see it come back. I'm going to stand. But even in the face of that, you have to just realize, no matter where I'm at, no matter what happens to me, my family has decided to follow the Lord with anything that entails, and I will be rejoicing and singing praises to my God no matter where they put me. Even if they take my life, they've only, they've only promoted me early to heaven. Standing out often means standing alone. Let, let me back up to that. Let me say something else on this. I want you to understand that the people that you see that are saying these things will easily vilify them. My anger doesn't fall with them. It falls with Satan. I know they're being used. Don't be angry with them. Don't lash back out to them. Because I truly believe most of them, no matter how much we think they have an agenda, really don't understand where it's headed and don't realize what they're doing to us or what will happen to us. They don't. Just as Jesus, as he's on the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know what to do. There are people who I managed when I was at Walmart corporate office who are some of the most hostile ones right now towards Christians when I see what they do. And they would call me their friend, and they'd say, love you guys. They love our kids. When our boys were born, some of them would give gifts to our kids. And they have no inclination that the thing that they think they're fighting for will be the very thing that could possibly cause great harm to our family. I don't fault them, and you shouldn't either. We should be kind. It's just like I said in response to the Supreme Court decision. What is my answer to that? Number one, what we did at the first. I'm going to worship the Lord. Number two, just what we're talking about here. We're going to keep serving even those who hate us, and we're going to give to them. There's people probably sitting on our lot last night enjoying the fireworks purchased by First Baptist, all the food they gave, and they will go out on social media and they will hate the church and bash them, but they'll take full advantage of everything that the church does for them. And it's okay. We'll continue to do that because it's a love of Christ in us, not us. And they don't get that. And it's okay, and I mean it with all my heart. There's some, I'm sure, that I rode motorcycles back when I was running from the Lord and and those guys would consider me a brother and do anything for me, go across the world. But on these topics, they would stand apart from me. Standing out often means standing alone. That was certainly true for David's mighty men. And that was true of our founding forefathers. What many people don't realize is after the 13 colonies declared their independence from Great Britain, a large number of colonies never fully united behind the war effort. Did you know that? It wasn't that you know, all of our colonies just united together against Britain and they were, whoo! No, it wasn't. There was actually some who, who sympathized with Great Britain. 
and a large number of colonists never fully united behind the war effort. A third of the population sympathized with Great Britain, and here's this, and nearly a third remained indifferent. So I don't care. Everybody do your own thing about the outcome of the war. Same thing we're seeing here. I don't care if people want to do this and people want to do that, church do that. Everybody just leave everybody alone. That's what some did. And that put the outcome of the Revolutionary War in the hands of just a few patriots who made up less than one-third of the entire population against Great Britain. They stood alone, and that's what we may have to do. If we choose to stand strong for the Lord today, we probably have to stand alone because standing for the Lord is not all that popular, and it's not gaining popularity. But these are the kind of people God uses to restore a nation to himself. God uses people who will stand strong in him. God uses people who will stand alone. And God uses people who will stand true no matter what. And what is standing true? Well, if we want to be used by God, we have to bring our nation back. We must remain faithful to the word of God and the truth of the word of God no matter what the cost. We must be loyal to the Lord and to his kingdom. David's mighty men were extremely loyal. 2 Samuel 23, 13 through 15. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Now understand this. So they're, they're down there. The Philistines was encamped at the valley of Rephaim. At, at that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem, David's hometown. So the Philistine garrison and, and their, their best was at Bethlehem and David longed for, a wa- for water and said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now my, my dad and mom are coming down to the first service and, and my dad has a well that's actually, um, during it, when it rains you can hear the river rushing under, but there's an underground r- river going under there and his well is only through 40 feet of earth and it hits 60 feet of water. And that later becomes that creek that goes through Springtown. And that water tastes awesome. There's just, there's no, there's no aftertaste or anything. It's best water. And when we were, when I got out of the Navy, I came home and my dad was still finishing up building their house. And I got to help on that. When it's hot, you drink that water. It just, that's good memories. Remember how cool and refreshing that was. And I can see David remembering those days when he was a shepherd boy. He's thinking back to those days when he was coming out of those hot, dusty fields surrounded in his home with the stinky sheep, you know, uh, the smell of the, the livestock and, and the heat. And then he longs for that kind of refreshment again from that water. And that's when he says mostly to himself, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. He was, he was only expressing the longing of his heart, and this certainly was no command. He wasn't trying to command this to be done, but... Look at what his men do for him. If you look at 2 Samuel 23, 16, this is, this is awesome. So these three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. I mean, what a leader. He's got these three scrappy guys that, man, I wish I just had a drink of that water, and he knows where the enemy is at, and they're like, boom. And they're like trucking it back with that water being like, huh, you know, we're, we're serving our king, and but listen to this. Instead, David, he poured it out before the Lord. See, David was so grateful that he poured the water out as a drink offering to the Lord. He wasn't non-appreciative. It wasn't a waste. David was there fighting, not for David. And these men, even though they, they were fighting for the Lord and David, but David understood who they were really fighting for, and that was for the Lord. He poured it out as a drink offering. 
In 2 Samuel 23, 17, it says, Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. It is not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives. Uh, is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. They were extremely loyal to their king. They stood true even at great risk to themselves. And that's what our founding forefathers did as well. They stood strong. They stood alone at times. And they stood true. Listen to this. On July 4th, 1974, Independence Day on 1974, just a couple of years before our country's bicentennial, Paul Harvey, again, talked about the price of our founding fathers that they paid on on this and on a news commentary and radio broadcast and this is what he had to say this is how paul harvey framed it up as americans you know the 56 men who signed our declaration of independence that first fourth of july you know that they were risking everything don't you because if they won the war with the british there would be years of hardship as a struggling nation if they lost they would face a hangman's noose and yet this is where they say, we herewith pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They did sign, but did you know that they paid the price? And here's what he goes on to say that they paid. When Carter Braxton of Virginia signed the Declaration of Independence, he was a wealthy planter and trader. But thereafter, he saw his ships swept from the seas, and to pay his debts, he lost his home and all his property and he died in rags. Thomas Lynch Jr., who signed the, the, that pledge, was a third-generation rice grower and aristocrat, a large plantation owner. But after he signed, his health failed. With his wife, he set out for France to regain his failing health. Their ship never got to France, and he was never heard of again. Thomas McKean of Delaware was so harassed by the enemy that he was forced to move his family five times in five months. He served in Congress without pay, Pause for effect. His family in poverty and in hiding. Vandals looted the, the properties of Ellery and Clemmer and Hall and Ginnowit and Walton, Hayward and Rutledge and Middleton. And then listen to this. And Thomas Nelson Jr. of Virginia raised $2 million. $2 million. I mean, in today's money, that's a lot. But he raised $2 million on his own signature by his own good name, to buy provision for the allies of the French fleet. He raised $2 million by himself off his own good name for them. And listen to this. After the war, he personally paid back the loans, wiping out his entire estate. He was never reimbursed by the government. And in the final battle of Yorktown, he actually, Nelson urged General Washington to fire on Nelson's own home because it was occupied by, the Corn, by, by Cornwallis and he died bankrupt. Thomas Nelson Jr. had pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. The Hessians seized the home of Francis Hopkins of New Jersey. Francis Lewis had his home and everything destroyed, his wife imprisoned, and she died within a few months. Richard Stockton, who signed the Declaration of Independence, pledging his life and his fortune, he was captured and mistreated, and his health broke to the extent that he died at 51, and his, his estate was pillaged. Thomas Hayward Jr. was captured when uh, Charleston fell. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside while she was dying. Their 13 children fled in all directions for their lives. 
His fields and mills were laid waste. For more than a year he lived in forests and caves and returned home after the war to find his wife dead, his children gone, his properties gone, and he died a few weeks later of exhaustion and a broken heart. Lewis Morris saw his land destroyed, his family scattered. Philip Livingston died within a few months of hardship of the war. John Hancock, which we know, know that name well, his, history remembers him best due to a quirk of fate, that great sweeping signature uh, attesting to his vanity. It towers over the other signatures, but one of the wealthiest men in New England, he stood outside Boston one terrible night of the war and said, burn Boston, though it makes John Hancock a beggar, if the public good requires it. And he too lived up to the pledge. Fifty Of the 56 signers of the de declaration, few were long to survive. Five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes from Rhode Island to Charleston sacked and looted, occupied the, by the enemy or burned. Two of them lost their sons in the army. One had two sons captured. And nine of the 56 died in the war from its hardships uh, or from its more merciful bullets. And he, Paul Harvey goes on to say, I don't know what impression you had of these men who met that hot summer in Philadelphia. But I think it's important this fourth to, that we remember this about them. They were not poor men. They were not wild-eyed pirates. These were men of means. These were rich men, most of them, who enjoyed much ease and luxury and personal living. Not hungry men, prosperous men, wealthy landowners, subsequently secure in their prosperity, but they were considered, but then they considered liberty this is as much as i will say of it they had learned that liberty is so much more important than security they had pledged their lives their fortunes and their sacred honor and they fulfilled their pledge they paid the price and freedom was born and then paul harvey says good day where are such men today where are such women for these are the kind of people god can use to bring america back to him in fact, God can use you if you stand strong in his strength, if you stand alone if necessary, and if you stand true to him and his word. As I close, I want, I want to just read a little more entirety of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I want you to take this in. Now that we've heard our nation's history, we've heard what our forefathers did, listen to this. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, that flow out of valleys and hills, and land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, out of those, uh, whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, and then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and gold are multiplied, all that you have is multiplied when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Then you say in your heart, 
My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. As, as the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so shall you perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. Understand this. God is not looking for someone to just sing his praises with nothing behind it. The whole gist of that is when you obey his commandments. Not out of duty, not out of sense of rules. A lot of people think that's what church and being a Christian is about. It's not. It's out of the love of who he is and the fact that he can not only rescue us, but that we're just passing through and he is preparing a place for us. Who is going to stand, even if it's alone? Who's going to stand true? It'd be easiest for us, for us to look around for some hero to come out. Israel did that for a long time. Even when they met Jesus, he was not the Messiah that they had hoped. It's you. If I was to name everybody's name in here today, that's who God wants to bring this nation back. It's you that can stand strong, even if you're alone, and stand true. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Jesus, thank you for your word and for this time for us to, to stand, our heart, stand our hearts firm, Lord, on it. Pray, God, that this word would bury in our hearts, that we would meditate on it this week as in, in our prayer times, that we would, we would let our hearts be, be challenged by the conviction of your Holy Spirit. With every head bowed and eye closed this morning, I would be amiss if I didn't give an opportunity to anyone here who is either by in name only, call themselves Christian, but know that there's no relationship to back up that identity. That there is not time spent with the Lord. There's no relationship. It has just been by name only. Or you're here today and you've never made that commitment to make Jesus your King, your Lord of Lords, to know that you no longer have to look at yourself as a resident of this, of this earth and this nation, but someone who is allowed to be there to be able to make sure that the opportunity is given to everyone to know Jesus. Maybe you've never had that relationship at all. You've never ventured out to, to be adopted in the family of Christ. And it's as easy as this. He says that if you, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that He is Lord, if you truly believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord of all, and surely today His Word has rung truth in your heart that you understand that He is truly a living God, your opportunity today to, to stand with him is here. With every head bowed and eye closed, if not for me, but to signify to the Lord, if you want to, to make Jesus the Lord of your life, and you've not done so, raise your hand to him. I'm going to pray for you. Man, I pray that we've all made that decision. And believers, as you still are, are praying, I, I pray that this week you will meditate on the scripture and let, let the truth of his word prepare you for what's to come. To truly give you the strength that when you're faced with what is coming towards us, you'll be able to stand strong even if you're alone and stand true to his word. Jesus, thank you. I just pray that you'd help us, Lord, today. We commit our hearts fully to you. In Jesus' name, amen.